if you take out a million dollars today in debt for say a hundred thousand dollars today in debt, wherever the listener's at, and then you wait 30 years, that million dollars in debt is not worth a million dollars as it is today. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Pete Rex, how you doing, Pete? Good, Joe. How you doing? Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, looking forward to our conversation as well and a little bit about Pete. He's an entrepreneur who hustled and bootstrapped a startup into a billion-dollar real estate company. His real estate company has purchased 17,000 units and maintains $1.5 billion in assets based in Seattle. Also has a couple exciting projects that we're going to be talking about. So first, Pete, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah, absolutely. I'll jump into it. Right now, what I'm doing is I'm running a technology company. And I also have an investment group that does investments in all sorts of stuff, including new technologies. It also does real estate investments. It's called Steward Investment Holdings. I have the technology company I'm actually building. The purpose of it is to revolutionize the maintenance industry in real estate. My prior history, though, was that I had built over a billion dollars in size real estate company. And I started 13, 14 years ago, coming out of college, not knowing what the hell I was doing getting my head kicked in for a number of years, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners have gone through or are going through or will go through at some point when they jump in. So that's where I'm at. Okay. When you say getting your head kicked in, what are some examples? Well, there's so many different lessons I learned on that from my head kicked in. I would say from the beginning, jumping in, hiring the wrong people, trying to pretty much save money on people getting cheaper talent rather than just paying up and getting better talent. That led to my maintenance side of the company early on as I was growing and building out the company in real estate to just completely implode. And I had to rebuild it again. And, and I had to do that a couple of times, actually, as I learned better to just pay up for talent and just get the best people. So that was a huge, painful lesson for me. I also learned lessons about where to buy stuff and where is the line that you might cross in your judgment between what can be turned around and what's actually going to turn you around. <laughs> And sometimes I got turned around on my own where I thought I would come in and I would turn around a neighborhood and that did not work. I have had success though coming in and turning around troubled specific properties, but usually it'd have to be in the, a broader neighborhood that was still good mm -hmm. in order to create value. Otherwise the neighborhood would get me turned around actually. I'd just be fighting uphill all day long. But there's, there's a lot of lessons we can get into as we're chatting, Joe. Just, just let me know. 
Yeah, let's talk about the neighborhood. So I'm sure even within looking at a neighborhood, there's a fine line of, you know what, this property is in a neighborhood that I think it can work. We just need to give the property a little extra love versus uh, the neighborhood's not quite at that level where even if we give this property the attention it needs, it's not going to turn around. So what components or what variables do you look at within a particular neighborhood that would push it in one direction or the other? Yeah. And this for the listeners is there's always different mistakes that one of the listeners could make if they're an entrepreneur and some of them are going to make some of the mistakes I mentioned. However, there's other things that maybe in my own biases, I had the right direction. So I didn't make those mistakes. So the mistakes I talk about were blind spots for me, but this was definitely a pretty consistent blind spot for me where I thought I can come in and buy a specific property and be able to get that turned around and get it with great tenants in there. And somehow if I bought enough of those properties, I would be able to turn the whole section of that neighborhood around. And what I found was that neighborhood would just fight back on me and I would never be able to get it going in the right direction. And what are some rules of thumb that people can use as they look out and they say, where is it that I can buy that? It's still in a good enough neighborhood. If I can add value to this property, I can actually increase the value of this whole entire neighborhood versus I come in and I buy this property. I try to make an increase in the value of the neighborhood, but actually, no, it doesn't. All that I find is myself getting in more problems and I can't even get good tenants to move in because they don't want to live in that area, right? So that's a judgment call. And what are some rules of thumb? You have to use rules of thumbs on these things. You can't have a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. I would say some, I call them heuristics, which would just be rules of thumb that someone can use when they look at a neighborhood is I would say, look at the trends. Where are the trends over the last three to 10 years? Now, that's just one thing though, because it could be trending up and then it could also trend down. So what goes up sometimes comes down, right? It doesn't always come down though. Sometimes it'll keep going in the right direction. I would also look at economic factors, school districts. If the school district is bad or it's not a good school district, sometimes as good as you do a job on turning around that neighborhood, Families just don't want to move in because a lot of people have children, right? I have three myself. They don't want to send their children to a certain public school. So they're not going to move into their neighborhood no matter what if it's not in the right school districts. That's one thing, right? Some of these are kind of basic thoughts, but these are real thoughts you have to consider as you come in. Now, a good buy would be you find a property. It's kind of dilapidated. It has tenants that are up to no good maybe or they're trouble, but the school district is actually good. It's kind of the blight to the neighborhood. It's problematic for the police, possibly. It's problematic. The neighbors don't like this one property because it's always been mismanaged by the landlord. Now, that is a very good buy. That's something that I actually did do multiple times directly, and I did very well and made a lot of money doing that. Now, the reason why that ends up working in hindsight now that I'm 14 years in, looking back, right, is that the neighborhood wants you to you on, and they love you, and so do the police, Everybody loves you. The code officials love you, which uh, the code from the local engineering departments love you because you're upgrading the property. The police love you because you're making a neighborhood better. The neighbors love you. The school district can get even better. Back in the day that I bought and we got it out of the bankruptcy proceeding and it was mismanaged the whole way through very, very badly. But it was in a good neighborhood, a good school district. It was an area that we felt was sizable enough. It was say 100 to 200 units in the property. And I felt that we could turn this thing around and improve the entire neighborhood. So when we finished that whole renovation and it was like a bottom up total renovation, we had to tend to leave. The tenants actually, a number of them were not necessarily on the best behavior. 
probably why the waivers <laughs> got this owner when around district got rated one more letter up or the rating went up literally and the neighbor neighbor had loved us wow. and then need the code officials to move a little faster well they got kids locally as well that are probably going to these schools they're going to move real quick they're going to show up right away and say hey i heard you need to get an approval on these roofs well i'm here today i'm taking a look at it How quick some moves when they have a vested interest in the community mm-hmm Makes sense. And when you take a look at the value-add properties that these variables are in your favor, why do you think others did not jump on them prior to you purchasing them? I have a rule of thumb that's a little strange. It's to buy trouble. And I'll explain how I think about that very quickly is when I started in business, I didn't have really any advantages. I had a philosophy degree. My parents were teachers. I didn't have access to capital, didn't know much about business. I basically knew nothing, but I did know that versus other people who might want to buy something or invest, I knew I was willing to go through more pain. So I would then try to target properties or assets where I could buy them. And I knew that someone else would look at that same deal and say, no, thank you. That sounds like a terrible headache. Mm -hmm. And I would say, that's a deal that maybe favors me. Then let me take a deeper look. Because I would literally do crazy stuff. Like I would move in, I would just come in with a blanket and a pillow in my back of my car. And when I'm done working at like 11 p.m. or 12 p.m., whatever, midnight, I would just literally just lay on the floor and sleep, wake up in the morning, borrow the soap, just clean up in the morning, and have a change of clothes. And I'm ready to go at 6 a.m. again. So my turnaround time was like just six hours. And I'd be right back up. I'd have construction guys coming in, just jamming things out constantly on site. Mm-hmm. literally physically on site. I would just not even have turnaround time where I have to go back home. I just stay right on site. So I would do things like that. And at that man, I was out there for however long I would just do that. And even now when I'm looking at new opportunities as an investor and as a technology leader, I have a technology company, I look for trouble. So the area on the technology company we're going after is maintenance. The maintenance industry, as every person knows here that owns any real estate, needs to be completely revolutionized. It needs to be recreated the way it's done. So again, I'm buying trouble. I'm going after this spot and that's where we're applying technology to recreate the way maintenance is being done. Similarly, even when I got my start 14 years ago, I was buying trouble even then. Now I'm just buying different types of trouble. (laughs) So let's talk about your company. It's called Trustwork? Trustwork, yep. Okay, what does Trustwork do? So for those who own properties or have rentals, I started from the ground doing construction, turning around things on my own, as many people that are listening do. I do have a law degree from Harvard and I have a CPA, but that's not how I started. I actually, before I even went to Harvard Law, I started on the ground doing operations and construction. I went to that later and I got a JD on the side just because I wanted to understand the law better and understand accounting better. That's why I did a CPA. But when I was grinding things out, I was running everything on my own. And as I was running all this stuff, I realized how inefficient the maintenance process is incredibly inefficient. You want to get something done, even if it's serious, it's hard to get someone on site. It's hard to have quality control. It's hard to have loop back mechanisms to know the person has a good reputation and they performed well. Even when you know the game really well, it's still an incredibly painful. So what I'm doing right now is I'm, I launched a technology company that's way at maintenance. You have some requests, say you need to get an apartment made ready for the next tenant which is a big problem. Say you only have one apartment, you need to get it made ready. Well, you could wait 10 days. Well, that's 10 days of rental loss. 
And if you're running a tight ship and you don't really have that much money, you need to be able to pay the bank or your investors in addition to the bank. So in order to get that thing turned around, you need to get a turnover group in there quickly. They've got to do a punch list. They've got to do all the handyman type work that needs to be done. You want to get it cleaned, painted, new carpets put in if it's needed, or flooring, whatever the flooring requirements would be, the whole suite. But that could include up to seven different types of contractors. That means a lot of pain and very annoying coordination. So I've launched a technology that's getting in there and it's recreating the way these flows work. Kind of like an Uber-like system where you can call people in, they can do it. And we have loopback mechanisms to double check on the work, track people on GPS, make sure that it's getting done effectively. That's what I'm doing on the technology side. So will you elaborate more just to continue to elaborate on what TrustWork does to help with that process? Because it sounds like I'd still need seven contractors but this is a way of confirming that they did the work that they said they're going to do. I know I'm simplifying it grossly. So we just help me with this a little bit. For sure, Joe. And here's the thing right now, there's a lot of things we're not going to be able to do yet, but I'll tell you what we're attacking first. What we're attacking first is the equivalent to in the past, some of the listeners might even be too young to know this, but when you needed to get a car, it was very, very annoying to hail a cab to get the cab over it was very annoying. So the first thing we're doing is we're attacking that problem on the maintenance side. So if you want to get a painter in, you need to get a plumber in to fix the drainage system. You need to get someone again to get some flooring in, a cleaner in to clean the apartment. Whatever, you can just person on the app and get someone that is qualified and can be reputationally verified with a background check. Kind of what Uber had done with the thing they did, and even currently the experience is that's the mainly what they do is you need to get a car and boom, it's there, right? It's available. Similarly, with the maintenance side, that's what the first thing we're attacking. Now, other things we're attacking is the coordination and the execution of that labor. That will be down the road. We're attacking this all in sequence and in parallel, but we have to prioritize at the same time. Got it. Okay. So the difference on the first thing you're attacking between Angie's list and your platform is that you can not only find the person, but then also you can book them and see the work through completion through the platform. Exactly. Angie's List would be the equivalent of like a large cab company. You would call in the past and your cab will come out, right? This would be the equivalent of like an Uber. So it's what was there before, but it's just completely next level. It's a recreation of it and a different way to do it. Leveraging mobile technology and sophisticated backend software and stuff like that. So where exactly are you all at with the launch of TrustWork? So... They're already operating in Florida and Texas, but we actually have in parallel a new application we're building because now that we have a lot more information of how to do this in an even better way, that's going to be at least two to three times, possibly 10 times better experience. But already in Texas and in Florida, we're doing about 10 million in annual revenue. And we've been around for about 16 months since launch. Mm -hmm. And I think that that growth rate should be pretty steady. And I would predict, and I could be wrong about this, so whenever you predict anything, you tend to be wrong, but I also might even be completely right. And it might also be much higher than I'm thinking. But I would say within two years, we would be very well over $100 million in revenue. Wow. And is that counting properties that you own, or is that just other people's properties that have chosen to participate in the app? It's really just anybody in Florida and Texas right now. Texas and Florida are so big that we're really just a very tiny touch into the market, but it's just any of those types of customers that find value using it. And right now 
we're mainly servicing larger property management companies or owners, but there are some smaller owners on there, entrepreneurs that are using us as well. And my goal is to get it so that the version of myself 13 years ago can use this thing and just not have to that crap and can just focus on building the business, right? Building the company. But on the other hand, these bigger guys are also going to be able to just let go of all that non-core stuff and just focus on what they do better or what helps them to grow more, which is driving revenue and acquiring more deals. If you had this when you were getting started, you wouldn't have the good story of you sleeping in the sleeping bag waiting for the painters the next morning. Yeah, that's true. But uh, I didn't even invest in a sleeping bag. I wasn't smart enough. I just got a couple <laughs> blankets, man. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But I would have just been able to spend that time looking for deals. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or, yeah. or getting things leased out and getting revenue coming in so I could pay everybody else. Did you sell fun trust work or do you have investors in the company? I basically self-funded. I put in 90% of the money. I put in about 3 million or so already, but I do have a couple other investors I brought in that are actually just partners of mine that I opened it up to. And they've been longtime partners, 10 plus years. They've just been with me and they've been just great people to work with. And they really want it in and I don't mind having them. And it's basically just hooking them up. Taking a step back, looking at the lay of the land over the last 14 years, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Best real estate investing advice ever. Go long on short debt, go long on equity, specifically in land that you believe will always be, not always, but over the next, say, 30 years, have an increasing level of demand by residential apartment owners. It's say a long that, answer. Yeah, I say that again. It needs please. to be unpacked. Yeah, let's unpack that. I'll unpack it. So I say go long, shorting debt, on specific land in which you believe and are confident, backed up by data, will grow in demand by people who are residential occupants that want to live around there or on that land. I'll unpack that. So I say short debt. I just kind of a saying the way I would say is leverage debt in a way where you get low cost debt, but you do it on a long term basis. So if you take out a million dollars today in debt or say $100,000 today in debt, wherever the listener's at, and then you wait 30 years, that million dollars in debt is not worth a million dollars as it is today because the currency drops in value. So 30 years ago, whatever was a million dollars is not the same. I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's around $800,000 worth of value. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But my point is it drops in value every year at about 2 to 3%. Mm-hmm. It's depreciating. But then if you go for an appreciating asset, which would be land that will be in superior demand in the next 30 years by residential, I say residential, and I'll get into why we're residential versus others, then you're going long on an asset that is appreciating in value. So you're grabbing leverage, which when you pay it back is actually worth less. And you're grabbing something that actually goes up in value and you get all that. (laughs) So that would be my advice. (laughs) Right. And why residential is because you can't predict, maybe you can, maybe the listeners are far smarter than me, which is definitely possible. But I've also been in the game a while too, and I'm, I'm a technology investor and I'm leading a company here. So I'm pretty in touch with technology pretty well here. And I know the game ground up and top down. So I think it's pretty hard to predict. And I haven't been convinced by anybody that they can predict accurately what's going to happen in commercial and retail and warehousing because technology is shifting so fast that you don't know what the hell is happening in 20, 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. But I could tell you that certain areas, wherever you want to think, Miami, Beach is going to be desirable somebody. It's a warm climate. 
it's a nice area in 30 years. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe the oceans rise or whatever, and the ice will go down. <laughs> so maybe I'm wrong, but I would make the prediction that it will be in demand. So if you own that and the demand is going up, now, why would I say Miami Beach? I'm just giving that as an example. And I have about a $100 million asset in that area, but I'm not trying to sell to my book here. I'm just explaining why. I don't even live there. I live on the opposite side of the country. I'm on the West Coast. <laughs> but the point is, you have all this Latin American immigration coming in, pressing in, and Miami is an awesome place to be. My wife is Latina, actually, so that doesn't affect my judgment here, but I just know that they love Miami. And it's a Spanish-speaking area within the United States. Tons of Spanish, almost the first language in Miami. So that's growing like crazy. And then you got baby boomers coming down south. So they're pressing into the Florida area too. So that pressure on that land is going to price up over the next 30 years. And if I put debt of, say, $70 million of debt on that, and I hold that for 30 years, I probably have to pay back the equivalent of $60 million. So right there in 30 years, I make $15 million. And it's probably worth like 140 anyway, years, mm-hmm. maybe more. So this is kind of a different way to think about things, but that's kind of how I see it. I follow what you're saying. Put long-term debt in areas that you think will grow and be in demand from a residential side. You benefit both ways. In other words, short debt, buy equity. (laughs) Short debt, go long real estate in specific areas. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy Gene Guarino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more. All right, best ever book you've recently read? Julius Caesar. I don't know what the name of the book is, but you can look it up. I think the guy's name is Adrian something, who's the author. But great book. I also love Julius Caesar. He's a man after my own heart. What's the mistake you've made on a transaction? mentioned it before, but buying in an area that has a bad neighborhood and the neighborhood ends up just giving you a lot of trouble and you think you're going to turn around the whole neighborhood and you're just being cocky. It's not going to happen. You're going to get turned around. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? My plan is to give back 100% where I'm going to basically push my future profits 100% into a charity. I already have one school we started, but that's my goal. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? At Peter Rex. On Twitter, I'll give announcements. I'll shoot out videos of things we're working on. I'll let them know how we're doing on the technology company as it's coming out, as it might roll out into neighborhoods that they might be having assets in or properties they want to use it. And right now we're in Texas and Florida. So if they're outside of those areas, then probably not going to be useful yet, but we're coming to a neighborhood near you. So follow me at Peter Rex. And also, if you're looking for an investment, you can also hit me up on there as well. And I do technology investments. I do real estate investments. I also invest in public or private companies. Congratulations with the launch of Trustwork and getting out of the gate strong. Thank you for talking about some philosophies that you have and how you look at opportunities. Will you build a turnaround or will it turn you around, as you say? Also, what you look at with neighborhoods. And then your best ever advice where you want to have long-term debt on properties that will be in the long run very attractive for residential occupants. 
So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Enjoyed our conversation. Talk to you again soon. Joe, thank you. Appreciate it. I wish your podcast was around when I was starting because I'd be all over it listening to everything. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy. Gene Guarino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more.